everyone, welcome back to the Trucking Driver Podcast. I'm Dougie Rankin and I'm joined today by a very special guest, former editor of Truck and Driver and author of the book Into the Distance, which we have been talking about a lot in the magazine over the past couple of months. It's none other than George Bennett. George, how are you doing? Second time on the podcast. I'm really pleased to be back, Dougie. It's great to be talking to you again. Yes, I mean, uh, last time we had um, focused quite a bit on the contents of the book, uh, but you've obviously you've got such a long and varied career that we thought, well, it would be good to have you uh, back again and uh, chat about um, some uh, other uh, aspects of your of your career uh, and all that was going on um, during uh, those decades. Uh, now. In terms of, uh, of timelines and things, you, you went into driving quite an unconve- in an unconventional way. It wasn't like, you know, it was generational, was it? You, you were at university. I was, yeah. And then, but I just always, I always liked driving. And as soon as I started hitchhiking in trucks, I got into trucks. And so then I, I got a license as soon as I could, you know, when I was just over 21. What, what year was that? Uh, 72. 1972. I got a class two license um, because I was paying for it myself, and it was they, they, they said I, they kind of guaranteed I'd pass with a class two. But after that, I took four days up in Crew Crew School of Motoring near where I was at university, and uh, and upgraded to a to a class one because that's what I wanted because I wanted to be able to drive long distance. What did your friends think think of that at the time at university? Were you kind of like on your own? Uh, with this kind of interest, interest in trucks, uh, they knew I was doing it. They, you know, no, nobody thought it was particularly weird. I, I mean, it just I, I just went off and learned to drive a truck. I don't think it. I don't. I don't remember much comment actually. I mean, they knew what I was doing, particularly at the beginning because I was I was um, you know having to arrange lectures and things around my driving lessons because they were all day, obviously the, yeah. the driving. Lessons, yeah, so I, I guess that, that that sort of period, that early 70s period for a lot of people, you know, if you ever talk about there sort of being like a golden era of haulage, I think for a lot of people, even younger people um, that weren't around, like they weren't even born then, I would think the sort of the 70s and the 80s, perhaps getting on into the 90s, that's kind of like, you know, the, that is... As good as it ever got for transport and haulage, I think there was an element of um sort of an element of freedom, while also the truck technology had come on to such a point where it really made it sort of viable without being you know backbreakingly painful and things like and things like that. And then the the distance things opened up as well. How many you you spent a few years. Obviously, we're going just to recap a little bit on the books. You spent a few years driving, and then you ended up going abroad as well. Yeah, I started off. I mean, I was just going to go back to what you were saying. I mean, one of the reasons, and I put it in my book, into the distance, was that the the one of the big differences was communications. There weren't any, you know, <laughs> and that meant that nobody was looking over your shoulder, you know, uh, and so the the drivers, you know, you didn't have the you didn't have a computer reporting back every move you made to the to the to the office and and you couldn't the boss couldn't talk to you unless you talked to them you know so that they had that kind of element of freedom in it and also initiative too you had to you had to make your own decisions for you know big stuff obviously you had to get in touch with 
back with 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 the with the yard. But so you know, for small stuff and even you know, roots and so on, you you figured it out for yourself. And I think that's what made it something of a golden age. And the other thing is, of course, at the same time, trucks had still got a lot better. I mean, we were driving, you know, DAF twenty eight. I was driving DAF twenty eight hundreds, Volvo F eighty eights, F tens, and so on, um, which were pr- pretty good trucks compared with the the Mark One Atkinson I started out with. Mm. So there was a kind of combination of much better trucks and still no looking over your shoulder technology. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not really nice to be able to get onto a self a mobile phone and phone back compared with trying to find a, a payphone that actually works. But um, you know, there was a, I think that was the critical difference. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there are advantages to driving today in the, in the modern era. You know, you can look back with purely sort of rose-tinted glasses and say, you know, everything was perfect then. But, you know, there, there were a lot of difficulties and then obviously there's been a lot of developments over the years which has made our lives, like, a lot easier. None other, none more so than the smartphone, you know. Can you imagine for like so many people, even like myself, to, to be without something? Who would have thought back then that you would have a, a machine that is just so incredibly powerful that it can tell you like anything you want and you can be no, like anywhere crazy. you are in the world at any one point as opposed to dealing with perhaps a set, you know, a set of sort of vague directions to a place thousands of miles away? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's definitely changed things. I mean, yeah, of course, it makes it much easier, particularly for navigation and so on. But um, you know, I always say that you really want you really want the smartphone for the last five miles. You know, it's pretty obvious how to get from, I don't know, <laughs> London to Glasgow. But then finding the address in Glasgow—that's when you need the phone. <laughs> you, you'd be surprised at some of the stories you hear about sort of drivers like uh, um, these these days. I've banged on about it before that I think that you know they should teach basic geography to truck drivers as part of the test, as in to oh. this is north, this is south. You know, this is where Birmingham is in conjunction to London, and this is where Liverpool is in conjunction to Leeds. Things like that, because genuinely. Some people don't seem to know. I think that's where we disagree. You see, I think 40 or 50 years ago, everybody knew because they were looking at a map, you know, which yeah. has got north, south mm. and south at the bottom. But if you're looking at a phone, it doesn't look like that. No, so it doesn't. Just, it doesn't. It's just, you it's don't, just a line in a direction, you know. It doesn't. You don't get that. Um, you don't get that overview. No, you don't. No. So... You've come back from driving abroad and believe that was, that was kind of, kind of like for family reasons sort of things. You had a good crack at it. Yeah, I drove I drove for more, roughly two years doing UK work, various kinds of UK work. And then I got into continental work and I did a year of Middle East, which I would have done forever, except it didn't pay well enough and I couldn't afford couldn't afford to keep at, at it with a family. And then I, I, t- I took a break while well, I thought I was leaving. The, the, when I was working for Cadwalladers on European transport, I um, then acquired an American girlfriend, and I went and spent some time with her. And when I came back, I was th- about to go back back to Cadwalladers for a job because they'd said I could come back any time. And I saw an advertisement for a truck magazine. They were looking for somebody to 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 truck to test trucks for them and write about them. And so I applied for that job. And um, after some time, I, I got was given it given the job on the truck magazine. And um, I may tell you, it was about. I was earning about half as much when I started on truck as I had mm. been as a driver. So, yeah, <laughs> you well, put, it, you well, put my night out money in together. I was actually, uh, it was pretty poorly paid. But it, but uh, I quick as I quickly, you know, as I learned what I was doing, that then you know that that improved rapidly. 
And then I worked on truck for about 18 months. Yeah, 19. So and then in some, I, I began there in, in March 1983. And in 1984, the editor, Paul Barden, and the publisher, Andrew Frankel, thought it'd be a great idea to start a special, a particular a magazine dedicated to drivers, which would be a, which would be a lot more interesting than, for example, Headlight, which is a magazine for drivers in those days, but it wasn't very exciting. So Paul and I did a a couple of um, pilot magazines. We did one in the spring and one in the fall of um, 1984. And then in 1985, I think it was May 1985, was the first of the monthly issues, and they made me editor of that. And it was delayed somewhat because I broke my leg in January, two days before I was supposed to go to Dakar to cover the Paris-Dakar rally. So that was a bit of a scramble to send somebody else out in my place. But, you know, I was actually, I couldn't drive for about four months because I had a plaster, a leg. my leg was in plaster from hip to toe. So I used to um, hire my wife to drive me on trips. What, what happened there, if you don't mind me asking? It, was, it couldn't have been more stupid. I was ice, ice skating with my two daughters at the uh, ice skate, uh, uh, skating rink in London, and I just tripped over and my leg oh. twisted, twisted over and I broke both the tibia and fibula. So it was it was a bit of a mess, but I had a really good boss. They looked after me, and so on. But we we were one time early on in the thing. I was going off to do a job with a guy in um, in Norfolk on grain haulage, and I couldn't drive. So I was sitting in the cab with Miss, you know, rather awkwardly with my and my wife was driving the car. And we used to do what they call tracking shots. Yeah, and that's so when you the car would drive on the wrong side of the road. Oh, we still do them. <laughs> well, and, the, and, and the photographer leans out the window and takes photographs. So we're driving along. And we get pulled over by the cops. He said, he said, what are you doing? And we explained. He said, well, go kill yourself on someone else's road. He said, because <laughs> it was fairly dangerous. On a main, you know, on a, on a dual carriageway, it wasn't so bad. But on an ordinary A road, it was sometimes a little hairy. Oh, yeah. I've done it many, many times um, yeah. over over the years, getting the, getting those shots of the truck. And the thing is, tracking shots are some of the best photography that you'll get. You know, if you get one that's yeah. just right, it's so dramatic and everything. And yeah, quite often when we're trying to do it, it's never a, a particularly good time. And people... I find that members of the public get really upset and kind of lose the plot because... You're taking photographs for out of one vehicle towards another. It's a str- it's a strange one that, that but I've only ever been stopped off the police once as well, and it was doing cars, and much like yourself, they were pretty they they, they weren't they weren't too impressed about it at all. But um, he didn't believe us at first because it was a Vauxhall Vectra that we were photographing for a Vauxhall magazine. And he was like, "Why are you photographing a, a, a Vectra? Nobody would want to photo- <laughs> Nobody would want to photograph a Vectra." Thankfully, he he let us off with uh with, with that one. Yeah, going out in photo shoots is um oh, was that's one of the best parts of the job when you go out and visit hauliers and things? Did you used to do a lot of that? Yeah, I did, and when, and um, I worked on truck and driver for a couple of years, and then I moved over to truck magazine, and then briefly for about eighteen months, I worked on car magazine. Which was which were they were all owned by the same little company, and and I like Car Magazine for a lot of ways. But what I missed was was meeting the truck operators and drivers, you know, and getting mm-hmm. people stories about what they were doing. Because Car the Car Magazine was basically about the vehicles only. It was truck and driver was about the drivers. It was about the vehicles. It was about what they were doing. It's kind of you know it was a much bigger story really and more human interest. So I preferred writing about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, sometimes when I, I I chat to um, 
operators are a bit sort of concerned. They're like, oh, we don't, we don't want you know our business and everybody telling everybody what it is that we're doing in the magazine and everything like that. And I'm like, I'm like, no, you don't really need to. What it's not really about that, you know. We want to find out what the driver thinks of the truck and what you know you think of, what you think of the truck and you sort of like I say, it's more sort of human human interest kind of aspect of things as well well it took a little while to get used to the to, to work out i think for the people writing about what not to write about i don't know the, there's a guy called phil llewellyn who was something of a legend because on track magazine he did a thing called long distance diary and for about 10 years he'd go on long hauls yes. or short hauls and all kinds of trips he went to you know he went to india he went to you know you do a short run in england so but the when I went, when I started working at Truck, I phoned up Cadwalladers and said, "Can I come and do an article with, on you guys?" And I thought, "Well, that would be easy." And they said, "No," because right back in the beginning, Phil Llewellyn had done a long distance diary, one of their guys, and they hadn't quite exactly um, been sticking to drivers' hours. You know, one of those uh-huh. days where they kept, they kept, and almost immediately the the ministry came round after it was published. And they had to do some backtracking, and Phil had to say that yeah, we misremembered something. There's all kind of mess. So they didn't, you know, you could. So yeah. after that, Phil went and learned learned to be um, to kind of gloss over anything like driving over hours or something like that. And, and Cadwallader just didn't want anything to do with it. Although they did do articles later after they kind of got, you know. Mm. But um, yeah, it can, it, as as tricky as a writer when you're doing like interviews and things, because during the process of conversations over the course of a day when you're spending it with someone, there's always a lot of stuff that comes up in conversation that's not for publication, especially when you're interviewing guys who were running, you know, during the sort of the the golden era era of to the continent and things like that. I always thought if ever wrote my autobiography i was going to go and call it uh, don't publish that <laughs> <laughs> well i think I, t- I, I we said before when i was doing when i was writing the book into the distance you know i i talked about times when i'd gone um you know quite seriously over hours i mean didn't say and look here i am over the hours but if you if you look look what i'm saying it's pretty obvious that i was breaking the rules but i figured at 45 years distance if anybody yeah. wants to come after me well you know the heck with it yeah i mean it's not it's not something that really goes on uh these days these days like at all the only way that you can really bypass these systems is by using a second tachograph card of somebody yeah. else's because it's so complex and Obviously, that's still that's still going to leave a trail, and if the only way that you can, you know, the only way that you can make this work for you is by using two tachographs, then you know there's something wrong with your model there. Well, to be to be fair, you know, if you look, if you think about it, I mean, I'm not against hours regulations. If there weren't any hours regulations, oh, it'd be there'd, be drivers, there'd be drivers exploited all over the place. We, you know, and it would be bad, bad for drivers. And but you know, there's just sometimes when you when you know, when, particularly when we were abroad, uh, you know, when you wanted to get to it somewhere, or you wanted to get to your favourite rest cafe or something, and mm-hmm. it took another hour or something like that, that kind of thing. There's no wiggle room in that, but I mean, in principle, hours rules ultimately protect the drivers as much as they protect the general road safety. So yeah, I mean, I, it, it can be like the, the most intensely frustrating thing in the world, or not like a Friday yeah. night if you're like. 20 minutes from getting back and you know that you're not going to make it and then that means that you're not home for friday night when you should be and, oh no i agree yeah and, and the, the, the things like that it's, and it's um i don't really one of the one of the things that frustrates me enormously is with the digital taco is that if you're trying to get parked for the night right at the end of a nine-hour day 
and then you like shunt in and you use like 10 seconds of one of your 10 hour days and then it takes it off you and then that's yeah. you lost it and everything and it's um and then the tachograph yeah. will be flashing at you for for that because obviously probably with an analog it wouldn't happen in the same manner but you know no there was a there was a little even with the, the old circular tachograph cards there was you know, five a few minutes like that wouldn't really have shown, and nobody's going to bother with it. You know, it was just a major thing that they would see. Yeah, I mean, I, I doubt. I mean, I doubt probably the DVSA would even like bother you for that. But what oh, it does, exactly. what it does, if it showed that you'd gone over like a minute or something like that, you know, just because it rounds it to a minute, they probably wouldn't bother you for that. It's just the 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 truck is now going to tell you that you've been naughty and flash up red warnings at you on the tachograph for the rest of the time because you've done yeah. something you're not so you're not supposed to but you know like all the the, the sort of uh, the, the antics of there's a rogue antics aren't so much um as what they were back in the, back in those days and oh no and, sure but for sure when when you went for the job. Do you know if a lot of people applied for it? Yeah, I understood about 40 or 50 people. Wow, right. And some of them were experienced journalists. I, I thought I didn't have much of a hope um, because I hadn't got my – I mean, I'd done some writing, but it had been kind of, you know, academic writing. It wasn't yeah. um, journalism. But uh, the, the the editor, Paul Barden – I mean, I wasn't – I was unemployed at the time and broke, by the way, because mm -hmm. I was just waiting – you know, I was waiting for – Cadwallader they said, "Yeah, they'd find they would just give a, give me a week." They asked them me to give them a week or two while they found me a truck, and then this the the truck magazine opportunity came up. So I told Caddies, "Could you could you just wait for a while? I see what happens to the magazine." So I went in and um, had an interview with Paul Barden, and it was in a tiny little office, really crowded. Um, in West Smithfield. I mean, when I was mm -hmm. looking out of the window of the office, I could see fridge trucks still delivering to the Smithfield Market like I had from time to time. <laughs> so mm -hmm. It's kind of weird to be with You could see one life as you're trying to do another life. But so Paul said, well, go and do me a couple of articles. Mm -hmm. So, you know, off you go. And, and so I did. And so I had a, a, a guy I knew who was, um, who was a guy called Athol Addison. And he ran trucks from, he, he lived in um, Aberdeen and he ran, ran to the Middle East. But he had a unique truck. that was It was a drawbar, left-hand drive, drawbar Scania uh, 142. And I think it was the only one in Britain, you know. So I thought, well, that's an interesting truck. I'll go and write about that. They'll like that. And it, to my amazement, so I, but finding it would going to be difficult. But it turned out he was down in Battersea, in south, just south of the Thames in London, loading. I rang up his the um, the agent Davis Turner that he I knew he ran for, and they said, well, he's in here tomorrow. So I went down and did, a, did an interview with him and banged on his cab and said, hey, you know, he remembered me and so on. So we did the interview, and I wrote an article about that. And that passed muster. So Paul Barden said he'd publish that. But I, I hang in there for, and then I did another one on a guy running Leylands in France. Why was a Frenchman running Leylands mm -hmm. when the Renault factory was just up the road? And and so on. And I did a couple of stories like that, and they published them straight away, which was. But they did. It took Paul a while to decide it was going to be me to, mm -hmm. that he employed. Yeah, I probably I was I was probably the only one that didn't ask what the money was. I didn't care. Mm -hmm. I just wanted. To <laughs> it's a common it, it, it's a common thing these days surprisingly the first question people will ask when they go in for an interview is what's the money and do we finish early on fridays and things you know it's, it's not the uh, i didn't care i mean <laughs> if you'd be used to be a driver away you don't really care about you know whether you're going to get home quickly 
And mm. I mean, I used to, I worked long hours and it was, you know, I had, you had to learn fast because uh, as I said, there was only two of us. There was, was Paul and me. And, you know, I had to learn how to edit and I had to learn how to write. And I had to learn how to fit things onto a page. And in those days we were using, we weren't using computers. We were using old fashioned manual typewriters and all our b- pages were being cast in what they call hot metal. It was, you know, they, each, Oof. each letter each word would be cast specially for the, for the magazine. So it was really old tech. And that was very interesting because it taught you to write in a certain kind of way, but which is, you know, I don't really want to go into all that. It's, it's a bit, bit lengthy, but it was just the two of us had to do this, you know. We, so we, we did a lot of running around. Yeah, I mean, there are very, there are very, very few people who actually write about trucks. Yeah, you know, there, there's guys, and um, it's the same as um, with the drivers themselves. It's like an older industry. There's not <clears throat> the truck press is like a sort of goldfish bowl. There isn't a lot of them. Or anything like that. Sort of everybody kind of knows each other after, after a while. But you're not really getting many people sort of coming in. Um, but the good, the important thing is, I think, when I decided that I wanted to start writing about trucks, because I'd always been interested in them, but I was very much on the car side of things. That I decided that I was going to go and get my HGV license and start driving trucks and then start writing about them. So because I didn't feel there was any way that I could really do it justice to walk in and talk to hauliers and drivers and things, you know, without doing what they're doing. It's true. I mean, actually, I think there were 14 or 15 um, truck ty- trucking magazines of various kinds when I when we were doing it. I'm not quite sure what the number is now. But two, fewer. two or three, really. Like there's trucking driver, there's trucking, and then you've got, Classic and vintage commercials, and maybe one or two sort of other ones. Yeah, you've got commercial motor, which is the weekly. Um, you've got and motor transport. So there's a limited amount, but there's not a lot amount of people sort of um, writing about them. And I think it's important, you know, you know, if you're going to write about them, to drive them and experience industry as well, because. Hauliers can be, you know, relatively sort of guarded in things. People will try and suss you out yeah, yeah. to find out, you know, if they, if you know what you're talking about and, and things like that. And if you're going to send in like a corporate journalist uh, into a lot of places, you're not going to get the sort of background or the sort of story that you would get sending in, you know, somebody who's perhaps, you know, pretty much an amateur but with a bit of skill for writing but drives lorries, so, you know. Well, you know, the thing is, I mean, I found that it was made a huge difference that I'd spend, you know, well, seven years as a full-time driver. Yeah. It made a big, big difference when I started writing about it. And for exactly that, you get accepted because people know what you're talking about. And when we were when we were recruiting people for truck and driver and truck, we just, we came to the conclusion you could teach a truck driver how to write, but you couldn't teach a rider how to drive. And so, <laughs> and so we hired people. We, I mean, the, the guy who you know runs the whole shooting match of truck and driver now, Andy Salter. When yeah. we took him up, he was he was a driver, mm. and um, he was a pretty well educated driver, but he was a driver. And we 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 had we were looking for people. We had a short list of ten people, and we went up to. Um, um, we went up to uh, Derby at the beginning of our then truck test route, and Pat Kennett, who was the kind of the founding editor of Truck Magazine back in 1974, he took everybody on a one-hour driving test. And so we interviewed people, and he'd go and, and see what their driving was like. And um, you know, we had a kind of code. 
if we interviewed somebody that we weren't interested in, we'd tell Pat, oh, take the route past the school, which meant the short route. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if not, they took us. And it was a difficult part. It was a hard mm. part of the test. You had to be a good driver to do it well. And, um, you know, and, and it so happened that Andy was the standout guy, both in terms of in the interview, but also in his driving. And that was really important to us that we wanted somebody who could could really, really knew what they were doing with the truck so that um, so that the test results would be reliable. Mm. But also so the people, so that people would trust us to drive their vehicles whenever you know, whenever we went went anywhere. Yeah. And so anyway, yeah. So I agree. You've got to know what you're doing. I think if you're going to write about it, I say there are opportunities. There are still like sort of opportunities out there for people to come in and write about trucks from a driving point of view. Because there are quite a lot of sort of talented guys. There's guys that send me emails quite regularly. That they're, they're um, very good. And then and, and what they write never write never like that, and they could probably manage to do it as well. But there's like a a confidence aspect and things like that, and it's a. I would say more now. There's kind of limited opportunities to sort of do it as sort of a full time career. You would have to be quite dedicated oh, yeah. to that. But from yeah. a freelance sort of aspect, you know, for for doing things like a couple of articles a month or something like that or things there's definitely scope and opportunity for people to write about things and write about their experiences and you know that and and, and that's i mean there's and there's always that's what a, a, the sub editors are the office are to sort of tidy it up if necessary but it's back my point you know you can you could make a writer out of a driver but you can't make a driver out of a writer it was our basic approach so that you know quite a, several times when we hired people we make sure that they would that they really knew how to drive as a priority rather than mm. could they write? Well, I guess, I mean, the trucks would have been a different, the trucks were very much of a different ball game back then. Now, you mentioned oh. right at the start the DAF 2800. It is mm-hmm. actually the 50th anniversary uh, this year of the 2800, the F241 cab, yeah. So we're going to, our, our final issue of the year, um, we've got a DAF special and we're going to be looking back doing a bit of a focus on that truck because it is probably, I would say that sort of series, the 2800, 3300, 3600, I would say that that is the most iconic of all the DAF cabs over the years, I would say, oh, yeah. you know. Well, that, I mean, it was very it was very big inside compared mm. with what was, what was I mean, I when they took me off a 2800 at Cadwallers and put me into a F10, of course, it was great to be in a new truck, and the F10 had a lot of virtues. It was warmer than the DAF, for example, much better insulated. The 2800 had not. I mean, by the, by the time they got the 3300 and 3600, it was a much better insulated cab. But it wasn't. There wasn't much as much room in it. You know, I was kind of, I missed the DAF space. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it wasn't just the 2800, because for, for a weird couple of weeks, I um, when I was doing Middle East work, I was let, I was waiting for a big job to go to Lahore in Pakistan, and and I was loaned out to somebody, and I was driving his twenty six hundred, and if you consider that was a a contemporary of things like the Atkinson Borderer, <laughs> yeah, and, is, that, uh, is that the old is that the older version with a sort of hand clap, yeah, wipe, it had, fancy, a, it had a clap wipers, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. split screen, but it you know it was and it was an early sixties truck, but it was way better than anything else that you could get in England, and then of course the twenty eight hundred just took it a step fo- a long step further forward. I love the 2800, fantastic truck. As long as it had the 13 speed footer and not that awful 16 oh. speed ZF. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I mean, but I suppose the 16 speed ZF, I mean, those synchro boxes were also played a kind of important role at the time because they were, you know, so it's supposed to be easier for anybody to drive them because 
if you push the clutch pedal in, you were guaranteed to get a gear shift. Whereas with yeah. the non-synchro boxes, you know, you had to match the speed and the revs to things. I can only imagine, you know, the challenges faced back in the day by guys where you got in the truck and there would be a gear stick there, but there wouldn't be anything embossed on the gear stick to tell you where the gears were. There wasn't anything on the dashboard to say where it were. And then you would have things like, you said, and Atkinson would play tricks by reversing the gate. So yeah. first yeah. would no, be down closest to you and fourth would be furthest up and in away. In but, you know, the thing is, the thing is, drivers, drivers then could do it. I mean, you mm. know, you just, it, yeah. you know, I think I've had this. We had this conversation before when, you know, um, when when the manufacturer would say, "Oh, well, then you don't have to think about a gear change." And I looked at them as if, and I said, "When did you last think about a gear change when you're driving your car?" Mm-hmm. And and truck drivers don't didn't have to think about gear changes because they've been making so many thousands of them every week that they knew what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was it was as automatic. So you know that, and, I, and the reason I like the thirteen-speed Eaton Fuller gearbox—it was much lighter to use. And I always thought that one of the reasons that Mercedes got so into automating their gearboxes, the gear shift, so early with the intelligent gear shift and so on, was because they were trying to overcome how heavy the ZF, the synchromesh mm. ZF, was. But that was just my private theory. So I mean, I mean, I admit it's an old-fashioned attitude, and and synchromesh was. It. But when I actually did have a synchromesh gearbox, when I got a, uh, the Volvo, I had to I had to unlearn double D clutching, you know, and and I could hear people going up the road with with those trucks when I was, you know, and I could hear them still double D clutching. You could hear it, so they'd never figured out how not to double D clutch when they didn't need to. Well, I guess when you come back to the same sort of things where nobody really, like today, trucks are incredibly complicated. They're all different in terms of the button layout and the systems and how you get things to work. And not often it's the case that somebody will come and train you on the truck and give you a handover Mm. and explain how to get the best of it. Because there is a lot more technology coming into them, but it does still need driver input to get the best out of it. Yeah, uh, and of course, very most of the time it's like there's the keys, away you go, and then you're like, you know, you're an hour down the road still trying to work out where the cruise control is in some of them. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 when I was in the when I wrote, I was talking about my early career as a driver in the, when I wrote in the book Into the Distance when I wrote it, and I, and I pointed out that apart from the first two weeks when I was taught how to. I wasn't taught how to drive, but I was taught to rope and sheet, and and you know, general learning the ropes literally about how to how to handle the truck and load it and so on. But after that, I never had any training at all. And when 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 I was first given a truck, we were working for Abbey Hill Group down in Yeovil, and they we had some DAFs and they had exhaust brakes on them. I mean, they were primitive compared with modern engine brakes, but nevertheless, though they were, we had no idea how to use them. <laughs> we didn't know. Whether if you use them for a long for too long, the engine would blow up, or whether you know, it took me a while to figure out that if I downshifted, I'd get more back pressure and it would work better. But I mean, nobody told me that was just me messing around with it until I found out what worked better. I mean, it was crazy, really, how little training there was. And maybe it sounds to me what you're saying that there still is. You know, you give somebody a truck that costs 150 grand, and you just expecting to be able to use it yeah it is <laughs> I, i've been i am thinking I, I would quite like to go and survey quite a decent amount of drivers perhaps from different age groups and across yeah. different types of trucks that they that they drive to find out sort of what their perceptions of the truck are and how they get on with things because 
when I go and interview people quite regularly, I'll ask them, has uh, the truck got predictive cruise and adaptive cruise control on it? Sometimes the answer is, I don't know. Oh, no, yeah. Oh, sure. Uh, and sometimes it is, yes, but I don't use it because I don't yeah. like it. And um, yeah, ad adaptive cruise control could take a bit of getting used to because it's holding you to the speed of the truck in front. Yeah. But I found that I did get used to it after a while and then I started to miss it because it is a, you know the it is a really good safety feature because it is holding uh, you at a set gap. But then yeah. again, with how busy our traffic is, that safe gap that it is providing between you and the truck in front is the perfect size for a car to consistently cut in. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. eventually, you get, eventually, human nature, you get fed up with it and you start squeezing the throttle up because you're like, no, I've had enough of you doing this to me, pulling in and yeah. braking all the time. But I said, like, there's a lot of stuff that people just don't know about. Like, it, like Volvo have got dynamic steering where you can steer it with one finger. It's so light at low speeds. But you can also get into the computer and make the steering heavier and adjust it to how you your exact requirements and things. But a lot of people, a lot of people don't know. But um, when you first came in, so a large part of your job was testing trucks. Yeah, that's what I was hired for, really. Yeah. I mean, but but it was so few of us that I ended up doing all kinds of other things. So, in ter in terms of testing trucks, was it like everything from seven and a half tonners uh, on up? What were the sort of uh... yeah? Well, I just start when I started. We in fact, we, we the the UK had just gone abroad in thirty eight tonners. So we um, I started testing the heavy trucks were, that I was driving were all thirty eight tonners at that point. The first test I did was with a thirty eight ton MAN. But we did. We had different routes. We had a two a, a two day test route um, that started in <clears throat> Derby and went up through, straight up through the Peak District to Manchester, across Manchester and up the M6 to um, to T Bay, and then across to the A66 and down across to the A1 M1 and down with down back to Derby. And it took us two days, and that was a pretty interesting route. It was it was a testing route to, for a truck, particularly the the Peak District stuff. Which um, oh yeah, Pat Kennett, who was the first tester of. Um, the first editor of truck he devised the route and it was that section we we labeled tough going and it was you know but so and it, so that was a test route but we had a shorter test route just around the midlands for doing um for for, for seven and a half tonners and for um for 16 ton, you know for 16 ton four wheelers as they then were oh, that's so <clears throat> what it was so i tested all you know and including vans we used to test vans as well but we didn't have a formal test route for vans. We sort of just drove them for a week and sort of wrote yeah, about it. Was, uh, yeah, did it the, the run to the rubbish dump, you know, help somebody move house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing, I just want to say about training, you know, when I was a driver, the, the us guys from the smaller companies used to rather think that that um, British road services, which still existed in those days, which was a nationalised road uh, transport company, we always thought that was a bit like the civil service. It was all a little bit dull. But in fact, they had they were pretty good on training. When I was editor of Truck and Driver, I went on a two-day driver safety course, which was aimed at their experienced guys as a refresher. And there was one guy that had been driving 45 years, and he was on the course too. And I'd been driving a long time. I mean, not as long as him, obviously. But And I learned a lot from that. It was very interesting. And what interested me was that they had set up these courses as refreshers for their 
experienced guys and they were planning to test to to put all of them through it i don't know how many thousands there were that's very well that's very ahead of its time that it was it was well uh, it, was, it sounds to me as if it may be not only ahead of its time maybe unique but i mean they mm. were taking tra- to the on the job training seriously and you know we had sessions in the classroom and there was one guy the instructor said to us one time we were sitting in the class he said do you need um do you need good reactions if you're a driver and we all said yeah of course he said well do you he said if you're really if you're really mm. driving you'll be really aware of everything that's going to happen before in front of you around you and so nothing unexpected is going to happen so you won't need quick reactions well it was a good theory i mean you know if the front tire that's, blows out you, could, yeah. you need good reactions but you know you should he's right in the sense that yeah you know you be aware yeah. of what the guys in front of you are doing and so if they do something bonkers you've already you've already foreseen it you know yeah you shouldn't depend you shouldn't depend on quick reactions you know it shouldn't exactly. uh, because yeah i remember being taught because i did um i did my training in manual gearbox trucks for um yeah. and the guy always said, you know, you should you should be looking. Don't be looking at that set of traffic lights there. Be looking at the ones two and three all the way down Absolutely. there. And he yeah, was so. like, he's like, watch this. And you know, he managed to get like right the way through the lights without touching the gear lever because he just sort of yeah. aimed it and cruised right through. And he's like, you see, it's like you could have driven up, went start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, and. The, there's yeah. no the, the lorry uses the most amount of diesel a lorry uses is moving it from standstill to get it moving in the first place. Well, the funny thing is that when I started driving, all the trucks were really underpowered. I mean, you know, mm. we we're driving a 32 horse, 32 tons for 180 horsepower. Well, you'd want you know you want that in a four wheeler now, but so we we drove like that because it took so long to get going again. Mm. And then as the trucks got more powerful, you wanted to go on driving like that because then it became more economical. You then had the power to get away from the lights easy enough, but you'd be using the fuel. So oddly enough, we were using the same technique, mm. driving technique with a powerful truck as we were with the really mm. gutless ones because because we just wanted to maintain momentum. It's become a, a, a sort of a, a standard style of driving now in, in Britain whereby car drivers, I've so many people, they just don't look any further forward than about sort of you know, a few yards or meters in front of their bonnet as to what's going on. They've not got any awareness of what's going on around them very much. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a change in sort of human nature where people have lost attention spans as well. They can't keep concentrating on things for a, for a long time either. And I always, I, I, I like to make the point that I think that lorry drivers prevent thousands upon thousands of accidents every day. You might see on <laughs> you might see on Twitter. Okay, there's an accident that's involved a, a, a lorry, but lorry drivers take evasive action to you know help prevent issues because car drivers will continually put themselves in danger around lorries every single day, and it's up to the lorry driver to keep things safe and and they don't really yeah. truck drivers don't really get enough credit for that. I don't feel well any credit for it as to the, the things that they managed to do to evade potential issues. We, back, right back in the early days of Truck and Driver, we had a, a column written by Pat Kennett. It was a very, you know, he'd, he'd driven yeah. practically everything you can ever think of him, all kinds of roads all over the place. And he had a, a kind of interesting career as a, he'd worked as a uh, 
field guy for Leyland in the, in South America. You know, he'd sort of so he'd he'd been his driving and seen trucks operating in rough conditions. Anyway, he had a column that we had for I think a couple of years. It was just called it was originally called Be a Better Driver, and then it was just called Better Driving. And it was every month there was a hints about what to do, you know, in different kinds of ways. And um, even for an experienced driver, there was things you could learn from it. Sometimes it felt a bit preachy, but but actually it was a, it was a very good column. And and it was just a way of you know sort of getting a, drivers to think about different different things they could do in different situations. And you know even if it just down to you know how to deal with fog, <laughs> you know so how you know you need to keep use your windscreen windscreen wipers in in fog you know intermittently just because it you get this buildup that you don't notice on the outside mm-hmm. and so on. So little things that he would write about, but yeah. it was it was all good. But it was partic- It was aimed at just focusing the reader's attention on different things, aspects of driving itself. Yeah, just a, just a little bit of food for thought, just a little, you know, just a tip bit of yeah. information and all that that you might find, you know, helpful at some point. Yeah, it's an, yeah, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting thought, that, yeah. We even had another column, which we we found a guy who was, uh, we wanted to do a kind of, you know, a health, you know, how to look after yourself, because, I mean, in some ways, it's not always terribly healthy just sitting in a truck all the time. And... Um, we got a guy and he was actually a consultant to some big, big municipal bus company up in the North Leeds or somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was, so he was an expert on sort of health issues to do with professional driving. And he drove a, uh, he wrote a column for us month to month called doctor's note. I think it was called. And it was just about, you know, how things you could do to keep yourself healthy. So there was, there was kind of that kind of practical stuff in the early days of tr- truck and driver that we kind of just threw in there in case it was interesting. Yeah, that's right. It's um, it is really interesting to look back at, at at the old magazines and see, you know, how things have sort of um evolved. Uh, I mean, but I mean, back then there was so many more truck manufacturers as well. I know you touched, oh, yeah. on, I know you touched on things that were sort of generally sort of um under underpowered, but I mean, going back, if I run through some um, I'll run through some manufacturers. And you can maybe tell me what your thoughts were on them, and what, what if there were any favourites or um, sort of dogs in amongst all of them. So, I mean, in terms of let's start off Leyland, which is a big, which is a big, broad church, if you will. But let's do. Uh, well, you know, those days, I mean, they were all you know, but Leyland and AEC and yes. Guy and all were they different all, they all different, came together they all came different, together different brands but they were all brought together but i remember when in the early days of truck when i was still a driver pat kennett was an ex leyland guy and he was you know I mean, he was a very good but he had a kind of bias towards british yes. trucks he did a test in which he demonstrated that the leyland marathon was better than the volvo f10 and i, I that was a, that that's a famous article that that is that's quite well known that i think I thought that I thought this is such a ridiculous conclusion. I'm not going to read the magazine. I didn't read it for two or three months. This is when I was a driver. But um, but I mean, he was looking at different. You know, he was looking at fuel consumption. But but if you'd asked any driver which they wanted to drive, there'd be no question at all. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, I feel I do feel bad for like because like AEC had quite a lot of um, uh, skillful like engineering things going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of these companies had sort of individual strengths, and it all just got absorbed into this. Um, this big um, congealed, me- sprawling mess that was, you know, British British Leyland as a whole. Well, it was it was funny that you know, yeah, but I mean, I mean, AEC was a separate company when yeah. I, you know, I I drove AECs early on in my career and um, and liked them. I mean, 
they were that that, that uh, famous ergomatic cab was pretty pretty rubbish compared with some of the other things. There was even less less room in it than was in an Atkinson Borderer. But you know, it was, it was quite a it was quite a good truck to drive and and so on. But but they were very limited. I think we talked last time about how Astran, you know, the famous Middle East tra- transport yes. company. One, you light AECs, the first Astran trucks I saw in 1968, back in when it was still called Asian Transport on the dockside in Istanbul, mm. they were AECs. And when and Astran tried to get hold of, get AEC interested in building a better cab, mm. AEC were very snooty about it. Said, you know, the, the ergomatic cab's the best cab in the business. Well, it was complete rubbish. <laughs> it wasn't at all. And so they were very blinkered and they didn't see. You know, they allowed the Europeans to kind of, you know, they kind of ignored them, thought they could shrug them off, and it was they just rolled, rolled steamroll over the top of them. And if you had a choice between Atkinson Border or, or a Volvo F eighty eight, which was what, yeah, the two trucks, two trucks that were running at AM Walker in Leicester when I used to drive for them, I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't even a wasn't even a decent competition. It was like the difference between. Well, it was just, you know, there were mm-hmm. decades apart in terms of development. I had a very soft spot for ERFs. I, I drove an ERF yeah. A-series. Well, it was a lovely truck, you know, um, noisy, but it was handled beautifully and so on. But all those little companies, you know, they were never going to survive. I mean, Seddon and Atkinson got together, which was a smart move, and they produced a pretty good truck. The Seddon Atkinson 400 for its day was okay. And I yeah. had one of those, too. Yeah, but, the, um, so the people seem to have relatively, relatively fond memories of the set, the Seddon Atkinson. Yeah, and they actually, but they actually did have a sleeper version of it. You know, mm-hmm. they were, Britain was so slow to do things like give give sleeper. You know, if you look, at, I had a Scammell Crusader. Well, there was a Scammell Crusader. It was kind of a pigeon box off the back of the. Oh yeah, the yeah, it's a weird, a weird looking little thing. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, it doesn't even go down the full length. Of the back, no, sort of angles exactly. down. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, and it and the cab didn't tilt and all that, you know. And so the, it was the Brit, the British truck industry was just far too slow to to adapt. And by the time mm. it tried to adapt, it was always doing catch up, and it never did. Never yeah. did manage to catch up. So I mean, um, so that's why I mean, it's great that the Leyland plant is still there, but it's not it's not mm-hmm. British anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, we mentioned that the, the marathon was Leyland's big hope. To go and take yeah. on the might of you know the Scania 140 and the, the Volvo F88 and things, but obviously it suffered from sort of I mean it suffered from massive lack of investment. It just didn't have the money to sort of um, finish it off properly. Um, well, then they it? and then they put the road basically. You know they they developed the road train cab. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask. What was what was your what was your thoughts on the road train? It was much better and it was a good looking vehicle, but it wasn't quite good enough. You know, it just didn't. By then, everybody else had moved on a step, and they were, you know, so the, you know, the road train. There's, there's nothing wrong with it but, uh, as a truck, but I mean, and I, um, I drove a sleeper road train once for, on a trip and so on, and it was, um, it was good enough. But if I, you'd stood the road train next to a Volvo F10, I'd have taken the Volvo, you know. Yeah. Now you you'd mentioned Scammell there, which was of course absorbed into Leyland. They had some pretty like the the Crusader was a pretty tough looking thing. Oh, I love the Crusader. I had a Crusader in North Wales. I mean, it was tall. It was very wide. I could. It was the cab was big enough. I I built my own bunk on the back wall, which I which I could lower down, sleep on it. And it was so, even though it was a day cab, I could have somebody sleeping underneath across the seats. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'd take people, on, I'd take people on overnight trips, and two of us would sleep in a Scammell day cab. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty remarkable. Um, but it, but it was, <laughs> it was a great. I really enjoyed it. It was, a, it was a good truck. But it, you know, it still had its, 
I mean, it wasn't a tilt cab, so you had mm-hmm. to get at the engine through the through the floor. I mean, it, it had some clever designs, but it was not a tilt cab because it was built for British road service. I said that they were considered yeah. pretty conservative. Their chief engineer didn't like tilt cabs, so we didn't have they didn't have them. You know, well, mm-hmm. even Leyland had tilt cabs of a kind then. You know. For you, had, you say you had an A series early on in your driving career because A series was quite, you know, that's like the. Uh, I'd suppose that how would that how would an A series ERF compare to say the infamous Atkinson Borderer, which is always the truck that you know it's like the the Borderer was you know a tough old thing that made a lot of people a lot of money. It was a tough old soldier, but it was massively out. Of, it was so. It was they were still making them in nineteen seventy five. You know, the border. I mean, there was months-long waiting lists for border. People really wanted them, and with a you know, and they wanted them with a Gardner in it and so on, and a Gardner engine. And then they developed the straight eight um, Gardner with a two forty horsepower, which is quite powerful. But I mean, actually, I didn't have just an A series; I had an LV before that, which was looked a bit similar, but with the yeah. cab set further. But I always liked the the the, um, the A series. They sort of set the cap forward. It had a kind of Get up and go. Look about it. Look, you know, and uh, which I really liked, but it, it also handled very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the cab was the cab was actually smaller than about than the border. It was narrower, but it was you know it, it break had good brakes and it was it was it was a good truck. But um, and I used to sleep sleep in that too. You know, I, I built the, the previous driver had actually built a kind of platform that sat that that kind of folded up over the passenger seat, so you you'd sleep across the passenger seat and the engine cover, and then stick something on the driver's seat for your feet it's, you know i mean it was it's pretty quite, primitive yeah i mean it's quite incredible the amount of like uh sort of um diy work that you know effectively that's what they're doing drivers were having to engineer themselves ways to sleep in these cabs by coming up coming up with things to get over the seats and everything like that there was absolutely yeah. no thought or consideration given to the comfort of drivers whatsoever and it fascinates me, like that sort of time in the late 1970s, where there would have been cases where guys would have come off trucks like, you know, a Borderer or an, an, an A-series, whatever, any one of these British things. And they could, in theory, have been handed a 3300 or even, you know, a Volvo, you know, a couple of years later, like a Volvo Globetrotter. And there, can't, there wouldn't have been any other period in time where you would have had that disparity, that jump in technology, because yeah, yeah. of coming out, right, there you go, you've got that, which is 180 horsepower day cab, you're sleeping on a board over the seats, and here's this, which is 300 and something horsepower, and it's got, you know, twin bunks and lockers and a night heater and power steering and everything like that. Did you kind of, yeah. did you kind of notice that at the time, that it was kind of sort of, the kind of haves and the the have nots. What was it like when some of these high spec turbo things started arriving? Well, you know, I mean, I, the, 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 actually, when I now I think about it, none of those high roofs were around. I'm not sure. Whether, I can't remember the Globetrotter came in when they I was were, actually. They were kind of more early eighties. Yeah, the, I think the Globetrotter came in just after I quit. There's mm. certainly the DAF Space Camp. I think they introduced it. In, I can't remember something like eighty four, something yeah. like eighty five. Mm. Um, I was still working on trucker drivers, so it was 84, 85. So, yeah, but, I mean, if you, I go back to when I was work, My first driving job was a company called AM Walker in a little town called village called Cosby, just south of Leicester, and they had borderers, which they loved, with Gardner engines and so on. We, they were not 
you know, and then they they couldn't get. There was, I think, it was a strike at Gardner's, and they couldn't get the straight eight they wanted to give them two hundred and forty horsepower. Mm. So they started buying Volvo eighty eights, and you know that was the end of Atkinson. I mean, the, the, the Volvos were more were faster and more productive. Mm. Drivers liked them, and so on and so on and so on. So why why would you bother to buy an Atkinson if you could buy a Volvo? And so that's what they did. You know, I remember when I was there, they said, and you know, there was, and I said, well, you know, maybe I can move from my Mark One Atkinson to a Bordera. Uh, up to a border, and they said, "Oh no, we'll probably you'll probably end up in a Volvo pretty quickly." <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. But they, like Gartner as well, they seem to be slow to adopt turbocharging. They had a turbo engine towards the end, which you yeah, would get. They, they were against. Uh, they didn't like turbocharging. It wasn't just that they were slow. Yeah, they were the, there was against... one of these famous people who said, "No, it's a fad." You know, yeah. sort of. A, it's the same as people who said, you know. Television, I'll never catch on. Internet, phones, tap, be gone in a couple of years, you know. Turbocharge. It's it's crazy, though, that their engineers couldn't see that. But then again, some of the feedback at the time that they did get from operators was operators, certain operators were very suspicious of that sort of thing. But if you're only talking to your existing customers, then you're never going to sort of expand your customer base either. So, well, you know, I was in preparation of this interview. I was just reading back some early truck and drivers, and I, I think I said before we did, um, we did an article on night trunking early on. Yeah. Uh, you know, three or four issues in, and it was a company called W and R, W and R, W and J Riding. In Lancashire, Fantastic and we went to do things. Have you seen the website? Yeah, they had about nine. They had a ninety trucks, and they yeah. were all all Atkinsons, and. Um, uh, were they Atkinsons? Yeah, yeah the, va- Atkinsons. the vast majority of them. Yeah. And, and he said, you know, what he said, why? What is? And he was emphatically, he just wouldn't buy foreign. He didn't want to buy a European truck. He said, what's the point of hauling British steel uh, and on a foreign truck? You, you know, you're exporting, you're importing unemployment, was the way he put yeah. it. And he was, he was buying British um, uh, because to keep support British truck industry. Well, not enough people thought about it like that to keep it going. And then, of course, the truck industry died because it couldn't. It didn't have the scale to compete, and so on. So, but but it was you know there were still people. He was dead against, you know. He was very fixed in in what he was looking at. He wouldn't have foreign mm-hmm. trucks. He wouldn't do this and that. Yeah, so, and and I, and I think it was quite typical of a sort of certain breed of haulier that had been doing it this way for years. And why would I change? You know. Yeah, if you actually go on, I don't know. Have you, have you seen it? The website because it's phenomenal. I mean, it is. It's got the complete history. Oh, of right. The oh, well, they are. Well, no. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was, just for yeah. anybody, anybody like listening, and of course, you're, yourself, George, if you've not seen it, wjriding.co.uk. And there's very, there, are, there are very few hauliers who have got such a comprehensive history uh, yeah. listed online. It's got pictures of pretty much every truck they've ever driven. And not only that, it's got details of what happened to them. You know, it tells oh, on. Oh, it, it I'll t- definitely look that up. That'd be oh, great. You, it's a rabbit hole. You will lose a couple of hours down it. It, it tells <laughs> you, it tells you, you know, what happened to one, whether it was sold. You know, or this one ended up being smashed and everything. And sadly, they were eventually taken over and lost their livery to TG to TDG. Oh, did they? Yeah. Yeah. So they ended up with the plain green trucks, and that's been all gone through various, you know, iterations of the, of livery. But it tells you there is just it lists all the different trucks that they ran as they ran as well, and of course they were big Sedan Atkinson fans. Now, of course, there, there was um, 
there was a there was a RF. They seemed to they had a big jump, I guess, with the B and the C series. Yeah, where they where they had this a much more European style of cab, which had a sleeper yeah. on it as well. Yeah, they did, and 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 they and they produced what was it the Olympic or something that didn't it had a it had a high roof. Yeah, latterly with the with the EC series, yeah, it is a, that's right. It is a it is a real shame that you know in the mid nineties ERF were selling a large number of trucks, um, but mm. of course it was all a front, and the books are being cooked, and you know MAN eventually found out that to their cost and everything, and that's like a huge. Story, but I do, I do kind of well, feel they, they were they were bought by West, they were Western bought by West Star originally, yeah. Uh, and, and and I thought that Western Star move was could could have could have helped them, but it it was too late and too little. But I remember going to see the Olympic a couple of times. Manufacturers used to get me along, and they'd say, "We want you to come and look at this." Yeah, but this, but you can't write about it yet. So, for example, when Daft did the um, the eighty five series, they invited me over to when they were still in the development stage to drive a development truck and give them their opinion, and I told them what I thought of it, and so on. Um, but they all, but at the RF, they took me up and so showed me the Olympic, and I, I'm, you know, I thought it was a pretty good attempt. It's unfortunately it smells some smelt rather of fiberglass because it was a, the top end of it was fiberglass, but but um, you know, it was it they 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 it was a pretty well thought out you know version of a sleeper of a high roof sleeper. But you know, again, it was it was um, too little, too late, and the rest of the world had already moved on. That was always happened with British trucks. They were always they'd make a step forward, but the but the continental manufacturers already make a step yeah, ahead of that. Kind of global economies of scale. I've I've got one yeah. sort of theory that I th I think that maybe Britain could have had in an alternative timeline, they could have had an independent truck manufacturer in the UK, maybe two. But Seddon, Atkinson, Foden, ERF, all of these little companies would have had to have banded together to make yeah. one company, to make one truck, because they were all making trucks using the same drive lines, the same brakes, the same gearboxes. And, so, um, you know, when Iveco went into Seddon Atkinson's um, place, uh, where was Seddon Atkinson? Was that Preston? Yeah. Or, uh, they said it was like a blacksmith. They're used to these, you know, immaculate, you know, bright white factory lines coming down things. They said it was like a blacksmith shop. Well, which which is of course a more expensive way to manufacture too, mm -hmm. you know, compared to anyway. That's yeah. that, that's. What about now? What about Foden's, which is a a brand which is um sort of very fondly recalled today but you know at the time they were by you know they would uh, polarize opinions uh but well you know the thing, it, it's funny you know foden uh, packard bought foden mm -hmm. and it was kind of slightly odd you know i'm not quite sure where they bought it and they they um the son of the then boss who was the grandson of the founder i think a guy called mark piggott mm -hmm. he was sent in quite young to, to run Foden's and Foden's were producing, I think they had about 1% of the tractor unit market and he, and he, they were determined to sell everybody six by four double drive tractor units like yeah, they have in America. Because that's what Americans had. Yeah, yeah, that's what you want here. Yeah. And of course, and he, would, and, he wouldn't, <laughs> and he wouldn't listen. And, and we were right. And I remember being pulled into, um, he had invited all, all the editors of the truck trucking titles in basically to give us a bollocking. <laughs> we all went to this lunch, you know, and it was a very nice lunch and so on. And then he said, right. And then he had a go and he said, and he picked out things we'd said against Foden's. And he'd said to me, 
he said to me, look, George, you wrote in that test. Actually, it was Danny Coughlin who written the test or something. And I'd said, we'd said this is a perfectly good truck, but it's not fashionable to buy Fodens. He said, what do you mean it's not fashionable? I said, well, you've got 1% of the market share. It's obviously not fashionable. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And he really, was, he really gave us a hard time. But um, in fact, years later, he said to, you know, then, then they came back a few years later and bought DAF, which was mm -hmm. a much more, much bigger and more strategic um, buy. And of course, it was only after truck, uh, DAF had got into trouble that DAF was available to buy like that, but they bought it. And it was very gratifying for us, <coughs> truck and uh, truck and we already owned the magazine at that point. When the guy, this guy, Mark Piggott, who's I think who's about to take over the whole thing back in Seattle, and he um, he phoned up and said, we're, we're coming over to do this deal. And we could have had some, we, we, and we'd like to talk to you at Truck. We're not talking to anybody else. So we went over and had an <clears throat> exclusive interview about the whole thing with them. And because he he kind of respected Truck and Truck and Driver because we um, we were fair. You know, we told it like it was. And he, he didn't always like it, but he said, but you were, and and, and he said, well, he said, I say to the guys over here, you should be more like Truck Magazine. And I said to him, Mark, well, you used mm -hmm. to, used to, uh, Criticized all the time. Say, yeah, but you know, you guys are always fair. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I mean, today, I mean, there aren't really any bad trucks as such. You could specify a truck wrongly for your application, so it's not going to be sort of optimum. But there aren't any sort of you know, there's nothing you could buy in terms of a six by two tractor unit that's going to be disastrously bad. It all comes down time and time again to the dealer backup and the spares backup. Because they're so complicated now, these trucks, a lot of them need special diagnostics and, and, and things. And it comes down to the dealer. And, yeah, a lot of the times when we go and interview people and talk to them, it comes down, it's not so much the truck. It's the service they get from the dealer and the backup that they're getting because if something goes wrong, it's not just necessarily a case of changing something mechanical. You can be waiting for parts for weeks and things, and it's just not unacceptable part of things now but yeah we do try i do try and be fair about things as well if there's something not right on a truck that i don't particularly like i will try and criticize it in a sort of constructive manner when, when i was editing truck mag truck and driver and, and truck i used to go truck launches and i was the only journalist that would sleep in them and everybody would be tucked up in their hotel bed <laughs> their hotel room and i'd go out and, I, and, I, and i'd go and sleep in the truck and we went to the launch of the Scania top line. Was it called the top line? You know, yes. with the height. With the high. Yes. And it's, that's when they had the idea of putting the bunk over the screen in the front. And they had a ladder to get up into it. ERF, the ERF did it at the same time, bizarrely. Okay. The only time that happened. Anyway, the, 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 in this, the, this thing is the ladder had round rungs on it. Yeah. So I'm walking up, I'm climbing up this thing barefoot to get into the bunk. And it was painful because these yeah. things were narrow. So I wrote that in the book. I wrote that in the thing. I said, you know, it's a, a nice idea to do this, but the you know, getting actually getting into the ladder to go to bed is painful. And the next time I saw one, about six months later, they'd modified the the, the ladder completely to have flat steps. So yeah. I thought, well, that oh no, that's a, that's useful. That I say. Well, when in terms of, I like when I'm testing trucks. I mean, traditionally, I will go and get a truck for a week, and I'll go and put it in an yeah, operator, yeah. and I'll go and work it for a week to get a real proper good test of it. And the only other person that really does that is Bob Beach. He'll do the same yeah. thing. He does it on yeah. a bigger scale than I do because he's like full-time freelance and, and, and everything. And I think that's a really important way of, you know, really getting into, you know, 
if there's any sort of niggles with a truck, you know, something that might just be, if you're driving it for an hour on a test and you've got something that goes ding, 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 you know, it might be slightly irritating, but if you've got that doing it to you all week, then, you know, it can become like quite more of a major issue. Although I used to find when I was testing trucks that I would, I'd make a lot of comments in the first few, couple of three hours because you very soon get used to the thing. Yeah. So the, so I I I and I always did it in a I'd dictate it into a um you know to a little tape recorder and um remember tape recorders yeah <laughs> and I used to so I dictated that and because I'd find particularly if it was a two day test the next day when I got into the truck I'd I would I'd already got used to it you know and so if it had little quirks I'd already adapted to them so I found that if I I'd have to comment early on, but while I still remember them, after a while you stop noticing them. I'm small things, yeah, and yeah. so I found that very helpful. To, to you know, it's that when it's new, you're noticing everything, and then a couple of days mm -hmm. later, you're kind of mm -hmm. you just adapting. Yeah. Because truck drivers are adaptable people. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm actually think I I haven't been out and done as much uh, driving like that as I would like to this year. Going forward, what I mean, the economy is not in particularly great shape here in the UK, largely due to you know. There's not a lot of haulage moving. There's not a lot of transport moving. And I don't feel comfortable at the moment. If I can go and get a week's lorry driving work with a demonstrator, I am potentially taking that week's work away from an owner driver who needs that for his week's wages. So I'm yeah. not going to be doing it so much. But what I was actually talking, I've talked to a couple of truck manufacturers, guys, and I've talked to Will from Commercial Motor about it as well. I would like to go and re-establish like a proper test route for demonstrator yeah. trucks to use on truck and driver, and I would like uh, I would like to go and look back and find that that precise route that Pat Kennett had that took like two days, sort of thing, because I would like to set up like a couple of routes because um, I want to go and make sure that when I you know I put the truck through its paces, I'm giving it an honest and a an honest appraisal, because you do get. Uh, with the drivers, I've got a certain uh, element of sort of, um, you know, power these days in terms of what they can have. There will be companies who will give drivers a choice of truck. So you say, you, okay, you can have a Renault Range T-High, an Iveco S or an MAN. Which one do you pick? And if I'm, you know, I would like to go and be able to go and write a thorough review of any one of those trucks. And I think it would be good to go yeah. and do it over a set test route with each one as oh, well. Oh, it would be great. In fact, I when I when I would when <clears throat> after I'd um, we'd sold when you know because because I had this small company that owned truck and truck and driver, and when we sold that and I I worked as a freelance for a while for Motor Transport and I did testing for them for about a couple of years, and I had a test route. I set up a test route, a one day test route that went from uh, the service station. Uh, I can't remember it's just on the M40, just north of Oxford. Anyway, it went there and then it went across to Worcester and then down. And then back that sort of down to Lemonster and across the, the um, mm -hmm. anyway, it was just a loop. Yeah. And then long before, and then up the A34 to back and then back to the M40. And so that was a one day route, but the two day route was a better route. And I I do like, but we found that um, manufacturers didn't like have, losing their truck for two days. But the, but I think it'd be great if there's proper testing again. It's, um, you know, it's funny thing. They used to say to, you know, we used to, 
manufacturers would say, well, we don't need to advertise in truck and driver because drivers don't matter. I said, well, if they don't matter, why are you spending so much money on giving them a nice cab? Yeah, drivers don't matter because if you put a demonstrator into a company and the drivers don't like it, they'll make sure it has very bad fuel consumption. <laughs> yeah, you will, find, you will find that, yes. If a driver doesn't like a truck... You know, and we'd it'll find, be a bad truck. Yeah, it'll become a bad truck. It'll become a bad <laughs> truck because they'll go and like break things on it and and stuff like that. You know, and it's um and and if they've got one that they've liked, you know, they'll get in it and they'll take their shoes off and they'll polish the floors and, it and everything like that. It's um, all those, all yeah, drivers. Things, but you can, drivers are, are a very important part of the profitability of, of your business. And if they look after, you know, if drivers look after trucks, if they drive them, you know, economically within reason. I mean, I know in certain at certain times you get manufacturers can get a bit obsessed with economy with things, but economy is only a part of um, what hauliers can do because they need to get things done. And in certain operations, if you're running, if you're pulling planting machinery up and down back roads in the Highlands of Scotland your truck's going to do what it's going to do. There's very little that you can do to influence fuel economy in the same way you might be if you're running up and down the motorway and you can make use of all the controls and things in it as well. But um, mm. what's the sort of last sort of things that you've driven? Do you ever keep your hand in with anything like that? No, no. I let, I, um, the, the, when I moved over to America in 19, 2000, uh, 2003, I think the last truck I tested was a, an XF95 530. That was the last truck. That I ever tested, and and um, so it's a it's a good truck to go out on. Yeah, um, and then I kept my license for a long time, um, just because you know I just like the fact. But in fact, I never had an opportunity to use it. And then, then it started. Then when I went to renew it last time about five years ago, they said you had to declare on the form that you're a resident in England. Well, I'm not true. I'm not penalty for the God knows why they said take this so seriously. Penalty for a false statement up to two years in jail. I'm going okay. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't renew it. And the other thing is, I was an age when I had to regular health checks, and so mm. they had to be in England. Da, 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 da. Mm. So I just thought, mm. I'm actually not using. I would like to be able to drive yeah. a truck, but you know, because I did it for mm. thirty years. But, yeah. But um, did you get? Did you get to get? Did you get invited on a lot of press events and things? What were the press? I mean, a press launch these days they don't happen all that often. Uh, and there's a lot of kind of smaller press events. People look. People sometimes say to me, "Oh, look at you living the high life and everything like like that, jetting away to go and do all these exciting events." And it's like, well, you've got to get yourself to um, you you know Heathrow or Gatwick or something like that. Well, like, and then you fly, you fly you fly out. You're bust in. You get a beautiful hotel room which you are in for nine hours, and then you're back out again. You, you 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 go and see the truck. You might get to drive the truck for a little bit of while, and then you're back on the plane and home again. And by the end of it, you're shattered. And it's like that. What that's not the sort of the glamorous excitement that you would normally think it would be. But then well, again, I think, I think they, you know they used they used to um, we used to do a lot of test uh, press events, and they'd be big. You know, they'd set up the they'd set up shop somewhere, and then they'd bring journalists from this country yeah, and that well, country. You, you do get the, them. the major. And you sort know, of events, when, when yeah. there were when there were a dozen when there were a dozen or more magazines in Britain, you'd have you know you'd have that many British journalists going out, maybe more. And there'd be a guy from the Financial Times and all these things. Be, and so we did a lot of that I, um, pretty regularly. And and it wouldn't just be for press events. I mean, like Mercedes used to take us over for, to, to look at, um, well, you know, different stories and so on. I mean, one year, Scania, 
when I was a truck and driver, Scania said, well, we, <clears throat> excuse me, we got no vehicle launches this year, so we're going to do something else. We're going to take you around the world to see what we're doing abroad. So we went, they flew us to Brazil, yeah, and we spent well, two three days in Brazil, then we went to Argentina, then we went to Australia, then we went to Taiwan, uh, and we went to Hong Kong, and we, and we did stories everywhere. We were actually in, I think we were in the air for seven that sounds yeah, good. I think I, talk, I think I talked about this before, but we, we, you know, so they, so the manufacturer is always trying to get your attention if you're yeah. a journalist, and if, if there's nothing new to write about, they'll find things. So that was quite creative, and so they took the editor of of Truck, and um, which was me at the time, and the editor of Motor Transport, the editor of Commercial Motor, and the editor of some. Oh, can we? Who, I can't remember who the other guy was. Anyway, the four of us, and off we went. And we saw all this stuff, yeah. but it, I mean, it was hard work. On the other hand. You know, there are worse ways of working hard. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, I see you do. You do get like the odd major event when the manufacturer is launching an entirely new model. Like, yeah. uh, I'm trying to think the last, maybe one of the last bigger ones I went on was the Iveco Sway in 2019, which was in Barcelona, which had yeah. the sort of, you know, the entire of Europe and parts of the rest of the world's press were there. And this was pre-COVID. So this was like, you know, full on you know it really is spectacular those kind of two-day events like that the efforts that they put into everything but i remember um one story this came from somebody like this was dated back to like the 80s where a certain a, a manufacturer had launched one of their uh, new trucks and uh, being like very relaxed in their attitude towards a lot of things at the time, they went and stopped for lunch. They went and um, they drove the trucks all morning, got to this beautiful bistro, parked up, sun shining, out with the bottles of wine everywhere, sitting there having a dinner. Wonderful. Oh, well, that was like a nice, easy day. And they're like, right, okay, everybody, back in the trucks. It's time for you to drive the rest of the day. And they're all like, sorry, what? Yeah. They're all like half, <laughs> they're all like yeah. half cups from all the wine. But yeah. I don't know, was it, were, there, were there any particularly memorable press events or things? I mean, obviously, you just mentioned the Scania one there, which must be one. But was well, there were, there, were, there were other things. I mean, the press events were pretty – I mean, the main thing was to to, to go and, to, you know, to go and drive them and, um, uh, you know, and then – and also there'd be these dinners and so on, but I always used to go to the dinner – you know, to the dinner and make sure I was sitting next to somebody interesting with a notebook next to me because, you know, I, I wasn't there for fun. I was there to get a story and so on. And um, so I remember once we were trying to go to the Mercedes guy. We were trying to go to Mercedes and we were supposed to be driving – we were driving but we were also uh, um and there was fog and we were hours late so we missed nearly all of it but we, we continued and the, there was a guy called ian norwell who was the press press yes, officer at yeah, the, I remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. very 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 good guy and yeah and, and he'd also been a professional driver for several years he'd done car transport boat transport and so on so he really knew what he was doing he and and he was a sensible but anyway he got me there and he sat me next to the chief and the, the the chief engine development guy guy and um and so that was great because I got a whole story out of this guy just over dinner and and, and explaining why they, you know, the virtues of those days, they were very much into their v, V6 and V8 engine. He was talking about why why that was a good idea and all this stuff. And and it was really interesting. So sometimes, you know, the, if you had a resourceful PR guy like, um, you know, um, like uh, Ian, he would sort of make sure that even if everything was going pear-shaped, you'd still get something out of it. So it's great. But, but I mean, also, we did other things, you know, it wasn't I mean, I was looking again at that. In fact, it was the second of our two pilot truck and drivers, mm -hmm. or one of the first two. They have this famous um, 
the, the, the famous ad called for the Leyland Roadrunner when they had a guy called Gilbert Bataille who could drive it on two wheels. He was a stunt driver. And he drove the thing on, and they did this whole ad, and the, their slogan was the toughest truck on two wheels. I mean, it grabbed the attention. It was got national. <laughs> to, and uh, But they they flew me out to southern Spain, to Almeria, rough, where they used to make spaghetti westerns, to see the filming of this. And we sent a photographer and me, and we spent three days there. And it was, um, and they wouldn't tell us what the truck was going to be called, and it was all dead secret. You know, you could do this. Well, as, in, like, as in, like, Roadrunner. There's a, yeah, but they didn't tell. Didn't, yeah, they didn't know, told you what the name I, was. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. had about three trucks there, and I was sort of sitting in one, kind of looking. I lifted one of the, the seat in one of them, and there was this thing with a roadrunner in it. And so I thought, yes, <laughs> so I didn't tell them I got it. So we had the name, and we t- we talked about that. But it was um, uh, my boss was rigging up, rang up Leyland, and was talking about the roadrunner, and they said, "How do you know its name?" So there was, you know, there were kind of moments, but it was that was that was really interesting to do that because they took a lot, put a huge effort in. They're lucky that they didn't have to go and change the name from that because Plymouth, like Chrysler Cars, had the Plymouth Roadrunner. Didn't they? Which was, yeah, they, they, they actually had the real Roadrunner mascot on it as well. Oh, did it? I don't know how they I would love to know the story as to what happened between some executives at Mercedes-Benz and some executives at Scania because Scania had their... Um, their S series, which they were, you know, you had the S um, five eighty, the S seven seventy, you know, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden uh, Mercedes came round and said, no, nope, no, nope, we have the production trademark sort of thing for the S class car, uh, yeah. for that S. You cannot put that S on that badge there because it may confuse people. Which, of course, it was absolutely not going to confuse anybody at all in any way. And we've seen really cases. confusing thing, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if you look at the moment, you've got the Jaguar XF car. There is a Jaguar car called the XF. Now, Packard and Daft don't seem to give a shit that Jaguar have got this car called the XF when they've been making a truck called that for ages because nobody's going to mix the two up. And nobody oh. was. But I think that's a. I, I would love to know the story. I mean, that is just. Like prime executive, what, what has happened between a couple of executives between two major truck companies? Has somebody left under a cloud somewhere? What is this? What is the story there that somebody somewhere is? I made you change your badge. I just think it's, it's such an interest. I would love to know the truth behind that. I actually think with the Scania's, it looks better now anyway where they've moved it, so it's now a 580S as opposed to an S580. I think it's a nice change for them moving forward in the modern era, but uh, there's a strange world of senior corporate decision-making. Well, the the sad thing is that I'd rather drive a DAF XF than a Jaguar XF. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. So what were your um, years on truck and uh, truck and truck and driver. When did you start? When no, did you no, I was I was when working as deputy editor on truck when we did the when we did the two um, pilot issues of truck and driver in 1984. I was then a deputy editor on truck, and so for the launch issue of the monthly, which was the May 1985, they made me editor, and I was editor of, 19, of that until May 1987, when Paul Barden moved away, from, left truck, and they and they moved me into truck magazine, which was 
the bigger seller at the time and you know it was a bigger magazine sort of more pages and more money and so on i mean not more money for me but more money for the for the yeah. publisher <laughs> and then so i worked on um on truck until 1989 i think and then um my boss moved me on to car magazine but he said he he wanted me on car magazine to keep its feet on the ground is what he actually said <laughs> He wanted somebody who could have, you know. Was, I remember once in Car Magazine they had a, they were talking about the of the Mazda Miata being as a cheap sports car. It was fifteen grand. I said, "How many of you? How many people in here could buy buy one?" And yeah. then they all said, "And I said, so if it, you we if none of us can buy it, we we on re, have a reasonable job. You can't call it cheap. You know, mm. it may be cheap in a Ferrari, but it's not cheap. You know. Anyway, that was that kind of thing that he wanted me. So I spent a little while on car, and then when they mm. sold. When FF Publishing that owned Car, Truck, and Truck and Driver sold out to Mur Rupert Murdoch's, one of Rupert Murdoch's subsidiaries, Murdoch Magazines, um, in 1989, um, I was actually taking a sabbatical in America at the time. And when, when he came back, when I came back and I carried on working at Car, it was obvious they didn't like Murdoch, weren't interested in the trucking titles. They merged Truck and Driver with Truck because uh. they didn't quite know what they were doing with either of them. And so Paul Barden and I, with the ad director on car who had been the ad director on truck um we put a made a little company together and we bought them so we bought that we bought them in 1980 in 1990 and then we ran them for seven years and then we sold them to to read business information which was our huge rival i mean they were massive publishing company i think they were the biggest in the world by market evaluation at the time and so and and so they published truck, uh, commercial motor mode of transport and so we sold out to them and so I was editor of Truck then again from 1970, uh, so 1990 to 97. And as soon as we could, we split, you know, because as soon as we got our feet, you know, we could have established ourselves as a company. About a year later, we split Truck and Driver off again and, and set it up as its, uh, its own magazine again. And, um, and and then it did really well. And when when Reed took it over, they they kept Truck and Driver going. In the end, they they did they closed down Truck. They didn't, they, frankly, they didn't know what they were doing. Truck was always both those magazines were kind of um kind of slightly outsider you know they would mm. say things that people didn't like you know if if the manufacturers didn't like well, it we, a, yeah that's the thing i think it's good to be honest and slightly like it, <clears throat> irreverent uh, as yeah. well truck well, drivers truck drivers are, but if we, you know they, if they appreciate they appreciate a sense of humor uh, yeah. and, you know and um yeah and they they, they appreciate honesty because they're not stupid you can't go and tell a driver, you know, you can hit them with the corporate sort of press release, speak about things, but they'll know fine well that that's not the case if they're sitting driving it every every year. You won't, you won't pull the wool over a driver's eyes, you know. We never printed a press release. I mean, if somebody sent a press release, you know, somebody would say, somebody's put, I remember once so we're ringing up the, the Leyland, I think it was sent us some press release saying some company or other bought 20 Leylands and they were, they were so proud of it. And I, and I didn't print that story. I phoned him up and said, why did you buy 20 Leyland? He said, well, we wanted Scania's, but the delivery time was too long. <laughs> you know, so that was, so the story that we got out of there wasn't exactly the story that Leyland wanted to tell. Yeah, I said, now, now and again, I have um, directly quoted a sort of press release and things as well. I don't know if there's a, 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 I don't know if I was to move into that sort of area, which I wouldn't, but, I don't know. I would have to change my style of writing to fit the sort of press release sort of style of things. I don't. 
well, it's a different, to get different business information across. It's a different business or something across it. You know, the other, it's two it's two different sides of the same coin in a way. You know, you're both right. You're both writing about trucks, but you know, writing about them in a different way. The press release is got a, is, is is selling you something one way or another, mm-hmm. and and if journalism is different because you're trying to find out what's going on. I mean, you right back early in the conversation, I kind kind of, I mean, you know, we our whole editorial philosophy was, um, you know, we would write about, we'd get as close to the industry as we could and we understand it, and then we'd write about what interested us. And uh, and that was it. And I remember we hired a guy, a guy called Jack Semple from away from Commercial Motor, who came became deputy editor of Truck, and he was a terrific business journalist, really brilliant. And um, and he said, well, what's your editorial philosophy? And I said, just that, we write about what interests us. Yeah, no, <laughs> and he'd been used to kind of focus groups and all this stuff and, and so on. And, you know, I said, if it, if it interests us, there's a chance of pretty good. It'll interest other people in the business. And it did. It was very, very successful. It wasn't very, it was kind of seat of the pants, but it wasn't, it wasn't as, as um, it just meant that, mm. you know, if it interested us, we could make it interest other people. Yeah, but yeah. I don't know if you know about how um, I, I started on Trucking Driver, because I was going to go and be an owner-driver. I had my truck bought, I had my CPC done and everything, and then I was, like, approached. Is that the Foden? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Maroon Foden, yeah, yeah. yeah. Beautiful, beautiful thing. It survived to this day, thankfully, but, um, you know, when they came in and said, you know, they were like, "What, what, what's your plans? What would you do? And I said, well, fill it with trucks every month. It's a truck magazine. Don't, like, deviate from the formula. Just fill it with trucks, stories about driving them, things like that. It's not rocket science and everything. And the formula has worked well. Like, um, we've ma- We're managing to bash out our bumper issues. Um, and we've got the Volvo special on sale this month as well. And it seems to be, you know, the, the market's difficult. And, you know, I'm sure we're in a recession at the moment. It's not really been reported on. But, you know, there's there seems to be an appetite for, you know, quality and higher value and extra content as well. Because the magazine allows us to do things like this, the podcast, until such times as they manage to get some sponsorship for it, which might come yeah. along, which I'm sure will come along soon. But um, yeah, uh, just to round off, I'm just going to quickly go and grab the latest copy of the magazine because it's got some details on your book in it. Uh, yeah, I am holding up the magazine and we've got Into the Distance Part 3 here, so we've been doing some serialisation. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, thank you. Of the book. And there is also the opportunity, dear listeners, for you to win a copy of Into the Distance, The Lost World of Long Haul Trucking, um, and you can enter it by scanning the QR code there or visiting online trucking driver there. Um, it's all in the magazine there, and we've been serialising it. There's another fantastic instalment in the current issue, which is our Volvo special, which is 130, right. 132 pages, perfect bound Ooh, as well. That's great. No staples Amazing. in it. Don't, Excellent. You, know, you can't underestimate how hard it is to do that in 2023. To make no, a magazine I'm, I'm, of that sort of size, you know, we're really pushing no. the boat out with it. But yeah, George's uh, book, that, there's still the opportunity to win a copy of it. Uh, it's also available to purchase as well. I think we were doing a special deal on it that was available. It's, it was um, $19.99 as opposed to um, £25. You're saving a bit there. It is almost Christmas. Lorry drivers, <laughs> you know. 
What do you what, what do you buy presents for for lorry drivers? It's the it's the perfect Christmas gift, and you can either win it or you can buy it at a discounted price. Simply pick up the latest copy of Truck and Driver. Well, good. I hope you enjoy whoever it is. I hope they enjoy reading it. It's been, it was fun to write. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like it. Makes me want to go. And I've always wanted to go and write my own book. I was actually contemplating writing a series of children's stories about trucks which has been floating about in my head for, for quite a while because I did actually write an entire children's story in Trucking Driver a couple of years ago, which was all about a particular truck which was owned by a dealership. And the dealership, the bosses there, completely refused to speak to me about said truck. And as it got closer to deadline, I had no copy. So I, I made up that the truck was sort of sentient, uh, and it was a story. <laughs> it was a story of this truck, you know, the whole sort of Thomas the Tank Engine concept thing there with the yeah. truck. And it went down pretty well. People, a lot of people liked it. There were a couple of people who were like uh, you, who were like sort of bewildered by it and everything. But it's kind of stuck in my head for a while. There, you know, trucks, you know, because trucks by definition have sort of got faces, haven't they? You know, some yeah. of the. And, you know, and they've got person, they have got an element of personality to them as well. So, you know, something I'm thinking, I am thinking about, um, I, um, I'm i not at the point yet, but I don't think I, I could write something. Um, so, well, I haven't done anything interesting enough as Into the Distance. One of our main contributors, Paul O'Callaghan, certainly could. He should write an autobiography of all his adventures. But yeah, um, thank you very much for your time again, George. Um, I get the feeling thank that this you. is... Nice. Great to talk to you again. Yes, it's maybe not the last time we've had you on the podcast. Um, uh, we may catch up again soon. But uh, yes, guys, um, catch uh, the latest issue of Trucking Driver. It's on sale now. And keep up to date with the, uh, the podcast. We'll have another one out with you soon. Thank you so much, George. And I'll catch you guys later. Thank you. Thank you, Dewey. Thanks for listening to the Truck and Driver podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. To keep up to date with the latest news, 100% for drivers, visit truckanddriver.co.uk, where you can also subscribe to the print edition of Truck and Driver magazine, which publishes on the last Friday of every month.